We're continuing with our guide to the psalm series, and uh, this is now chapter four, the nature of Hebrew poetry, and Josiah knows that uh, I've, every week uh, so far, every message so far, I've gotten through a lot less material than what I had on the page, and so I've had to uh, kind of go back and change the titles to, to uh, be more in line with what we actually covered. So I'm going to give us a very quick review, but by 10 minutes to 10, I'm going to, I'm going to make quit reviewing. So let's start at the beginning. Chapter 1 of A Guide to the Psalm series, we broke our usual rule of only two pages per outline. We had four pages because I made chapter 1 quotes from the New Testament quoting the Psalms. And so uh, just to remind us, the New Testament quotes the Psalms over and over and over again so many times that using 12-point print and not uh, putting extra spaces between lines or anything is kind of consolidating it, I still had to leave out somewhere between 25 and 30% of the quotes uh, from, the, from the Psalms that are in the New Testament in order to fit them on four pages. And of course, a lot of the, uh, we're going to look at categories of Psalms in upcoming weeks, and there's no uh, accepted number of categories. There's, uh, you know, the Reformation Study Bible has six genres or categories of psalms. Uh, the, the book I'm reading by a Cedarville professor has ten. Uh, there's, you know, there's different schemes like that. And so, and, uh, you know, then there's some people would make the imprecatory psalms a, a special category. Some people would make the Psalms of Confession or Repentance, uh, the, the Penitential Psalms, they're called a separate category, uh, although the Reformation Study Bible puts the Penitential Psalms under the category of Psalms of Lament, which is a much bigger category. And I don't know if they did it because they, Reformed people tend to not like anything that smacks of Catholicism. And, uh, of course, the idea of the seven Psalms of Penitential were... were you know, an idea that emerged long before the Reformation, so some people might associate it with the Roman Catholic Church, which is kind of silly. But, uh, so I don't know why they didn't, they don't have that as a separate category. But in any case, um, what we emphasize in chapter 1, there, uh, there's three scriptures, Luke 24, 36 through 49 contains two of them. And the other one, so they're on their page, the page, and you can read, so I'm just going to quote the other one that's not on the page, John 5, 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life, but these, that is the scriptures, are what bears witness of me. So Jesus is saying that what we know as the Old Testament today, which the Hebrews would have just thought of as the scriptures, but the same, they, the same 39 uh, books that we use today in Protestant circles were accepted by the Jewish Sanhedrin more than 100 years before Christ, and Christ and the apostles accepted those as being the divinely inspired scriptures because they quote from them regularly, and they never raise the issue that should one of them be put in there or not. Okay, and, and in fact, Jesus says all sorts of things like the scripture cannot be broken. 
give, uh, basically saying the scripture is authoritative. So Jesus is letting us know that the Old Testament is all about him. And that, in a nutshell, is what we call the apostolic hermeneutic around here at Grace Christian Fellowship. The apostles, in writing the New Testament, the apostles and their designees, uh, all New Testament books were either written by one of the original 12 apostles, Paul, the untimely born apostle, or one of their disciple designees. So James is... uh, the Lord's brother James, and so is Jude, but they became key figures in the church in Jerusalem and were disciples of both Peter and John. Uh, Luke uh, is is the only non Greek or non Hebrew writer, the only Greek writer of the New Testament, and Luke is a disciple of Peter for the first half of the book of Acts. And then he switches to being a disciple of Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. When I say disciple, I'm thinking in terms of training and equipping for the work of ministry. You know, he's not a disciple in the sense of just personal pastoral care or something like that, but he's a member of the team, and he's a key member of the team. And if you, like, study out teams in the New Testament, you can find just over 30 names that are associated with Paul Uh, Some of which are guys like Apollos who tend to have their own team, but Paul and Apollos recommended each other's teams and and received each other's authority. But others are people that Paul gives orders to. They're members of the team, and he's clearly the general on the team. And, uh, you know, and he's telling Titus and, and Sylvanus and Timothy, you know, where... Where, not only where to go minister, but what, what to emphasize and everything like that. So, uh, of course, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is Peter's disciple first, then Paul's, then back to Peter's. And, of course, he was, uh, he was Barnabas's cousin. So, and he uh, appears to be the young man who fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he was probably traveling with the disciples in that 120 or so that we see in the book of Acts, uh, although he wasn't one of the 12. So anyway, in all of that, uh, it's probably more than we needed to get into with that. Uh, we've, a lot of you know some of that already. Um, but our Lord clearly says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that is to understand that the scriptures always were and always will be about Jesus. Every bit of it. So in chapter 2 in A Guide to the Psalms, we looked at, we introduced the concept of wisdom literature because the five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, are sometimes called the poetry books or poetical books, but they're also sometimes called the wisdom literature. And the wisdom is first and foremost always uh, often personified, uh, as we see in Proverbs 8 and so forth. And uh, I want to emphasize to us that the, the New Testament makes it clear that Christ Jesus in him are hidden all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. And when you see wisdom personified, in the Old Testament, the, the wisdom books are all about Jesus, the, the ultimate man of wisdom. 
So if you remember, it was said of Solomon that he was the wisest man who had ever lived in his day. However, Solomon disobeyed Deuteronomy, which tells uh, the kings aren't to multiply horses and wives for themselves. And he disobeyed that from the beginning of his kingship. And it eventually stole his heart away from the Lord, and he didn't end well. And if you know anything about walking with the Lord, it's uh, the hardest thing is ending well. It's uh, many, 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 many people start well that don't end well. And so, um, also in the wisdom literature, I don't know if I concluded uh, a recap of the definition of it. I guess we didn't. Um, no, we did. Uh, so it's it's basically uh, biblical wisdom is manifested in your lifestyle. It's manifested in fearing God in practical areas. Uh, it brings you into the realm gradually of blessing versus the realm of curse. That's a difficult one because things aren't performance based. They never were. Nevertheless, those who receive grace and respond to grace and 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 uh, and so forth, there is kind of a progressive realm of the presence of God, and, and there's many blessings that grow out of that. Now, the blessings aren't always what we would define as blessings, because they in, include many across the bear to sanctify you. And you would, you know, this tough time is actually, that you're going through is actually a great blessing. Uh, but in our uh, human frailty and wimpiness, we don't always look at it that way. <laughs> We're not always thanking God for officer Diaz. Uh, <laughs> and uh, sometimes we're grumbling and complaining. But when we are, there's grace for repentance, but the truth is we're wrong. God causes all things to work together for the good, even sending officer Diaz. Or, or whatever, the, the boss you have, the, that difficult person you're mentoring or discipling, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, lastly, um, so, you know, the whole thing of two paths, uh, right, the righteous path or the wise path and the fool's path, righteousness is, is, a, is uh, in, in practical expressions is, is equivalent to wisdom. In the scripture. Righteousness, how God defines it. Foolishness is actually equivalent to not fearing God and living a, a profligate uh, life of dissipation and wastefulness. Uh, chapter 3, which was actually just last week, we looked at uh, a concept that we've taught a lot about over the years here at Grace Christian Fellowship, the whole di idea of biblical imagery um, unlike most poetry, which takes its beauty from rhyme and rhythm primarily, uh, by the way, in the Hebrew, there are things that are rhyme and rhythm. They just don't come through in translation. But it's not a major part of what Hebrew poetry is all about. Hebrew poetry is all about imagery and the thing we're going to talk about today. But we already know a lot about imagery. Uh, so we'll... Uh, um, 
skip that and turn over the page and get right into the stuff for today because I'm at 10 till and I wanted to stay on, on that kind of schedule. All right, so today, there you go, wifey. <laughs> she exhorted me last night not to waste all my time on the, on the recap. It's hard because we're in a you know, vacation time and there's a lot of people sitting in the audience who weren't here for the first three. And you do kind of need that information to, uh, to fully appreciate what we're getting into. So today we're going to talk about the second most important characteristic, although if you uh, read the Reformation Study Bible or the English Standard Version Study Bible or lots of study Bibles, or if you just get online and you Google characteristics of Hebrew poetry or tell me about Hebrew poetry or something like that, which I've done a lot of lately, um, uh, some would, some would uh, cover uh, parallelism, which we're going to cover today, before imagery. That, that's sort of my own personal choice because I think uh, in terms of Christology, the whole Bible is about imagery and biblical word pictures. And we used a couple examples, you know, last week, uh, like... Uh, Let's see if I can pull one out. Uh, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for the, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green. And we can all think about grass fading. We all know that when Jonathan mows your lawn, uh, as he does down at Sydney's house, and I think John Gray, does he mow your lawn? So you, you have several people in the church whose lawns you mow, right? What's that? Anyway, when Jonathan mows your lawn, or, or whoever mows your lawn, uh, it's nice and green, right? And then the next day, all the lawn that got mowed is withered, faded, and dried up, right? It's got less moisture, it's, it's lighter in color, and it's uh, more flyaway because it's dried up. So that's uh, an image we can all relate to even when we live in the city. All right, so let's uh, move on. So today when we look at parallelism, first thing we have to do before we talk about parallelisms is look at building blocks of Hebrew poetry because we've got to build up to the parallels. Okay, so first thing, uh, we could actually go back as far as we want and say that, uh, you know, words are made up of letters, and there's 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's 26 in the English alphabet. And Hebrew characters don't look much like, uh, like English letters. When I was in high school, my brother and his friends started a little high school fraternity, which they gave themselves a Hebrew name with all Hebrew letters because they were saying something raunchy and dirty on it. <laughs> And, uh, and so they didn't want anybody to know what, it, what the name of the fraternity was, so it was, just, it was several Hebrew letters. And I remember uh, when they first got the jackets, the uh, local Catholic priest, I happened to be present when this happened, he said, you know, I read Hebrew and I know what that means. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, so I didn't know how to look things up on the Internet yet, so I said, can you tell me? But... Uh, So, um, I get, so you could say that, you know, words are made up of letters, 
And letters uh, in our alphabet represent sounds. Many of our letters have more than one sound, like long and short vowels and so forth. But uh, letters uh, make up words. And in Hebrew poetry, words make up cola, which has nothing to do with a beverage with dark coloring that will kill you. Uh, <laughs> uh, in plural, they're colons. Uh, colons or make up lines, and uh, lines make up uh, strophes, strophes, and uh, strophes uh, could also be called stanzas at times, and uh, colas are often called stitches. You don't see the one the stitches much in stanza. You normally see if they're talking about modern poetry. You don't see stanza much with regard to Hebrew poetry. Now, a cola is a brief, short, or terse idea or thought in a line of Hebrew poetry, and it's also called a stitch. Or I don't know if that's pronounced stik or something. I don't know. Proverbs 27, 17a, the first part of the verse says, Iron sharpens iron. Now we're going to look at parallelism, so the completion with the parallelism, so one man sharpens another. And the two, the two thoughts uh, make one, one complete thought, uh, or one sentence, or, or one line. But the cola, iron sharpens iron, is the first cola, so one man sharpens another is the second cola, and the two of them compose one line. So we're starting to get colas and lines, I hope. And um, when you, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, is the first cola. I shall not want, is the second cola of one line in, in uh, Psalm 23. Now, one line is not the same as one verse. Uh, sometimes a verse is several lines. And remember, the verses were added many hundreds of years later. They're nice and handy. But if you don't remember that, you'll miss a lot of good thinking when you're reading your Bible because the, the verses aren't always in the right place. That's why, uh, you know, John's been doing a series on Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 3 through... Um, I think it's around verse 22, is just one long run-on sentence. And um, there's a similar one in, that's pretty long in chapter 2. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a guess by the translators where to put the punctuations in modern English. So they, they come right in the middle of verses sometimes. So remember, the verses aren't inspired... And you kind of need to get rid of the verses in your mind when you're reading to get the real meaning. Now, they're very convenient because uh, otherwise we'd have to do what the writer of Hebrews do, does where he says, somewhere it's written, and then he quotes scriptures, but he doesn't tell you the book, the chapter, or the verse, but it's in there, and you got to go find it. So uh, it's nice when it says, you know, as Isaiah said or whatever, at least narrows down the book for you. But in modern Bible teaching, you know, we'll say, turn to Ephesians 4, let's look at verse 3. But always read it in the context, especially in the sense that it's probably not, one verse is probably not a sentence necessarily, 
And often where our modern punctuation of sentences would come are right in the middle of verses. So make sure, you know, every verse needs to be interpreted in the context of the immediate verses that's around, but also the context of the whole book. When was it written? Who was the author? What's he, what are the main themes? For instance, you know, if you're reading Ephesians, one of the major themes is all the biblical imagery and word pictures for the church. Some people have said uh, Ephesians is, um, is the book about Christ and his church, or the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, whereas uh, Colossians is the book about uh, the Christ of the church. So, and we've done series on both books in this church. I think one of the first series is Jason, John, and I ever did. I think the second one we ever did was on Colossians. Way back. In a galaxy far away. In another time. All right. So, lines are often are a sentence, but they're usually made up of cola, by cola. Now, I put the word couplet in there because uh, when I was a young Christian, for various reasons, I was a little skeptical about other people's uh, ideas in biblical studies for a long time. And so a lot of the things I learned, you know, for instance, we talk about the delivery systems of grace or the tools of grace in Grace Christian Fellowship. That was just what we ca called them in Bowling Green and so forth. Because I didn't actually know enough church history yet to know it was a major concept of the Reformation that there's means of grace. And they're what we call the delivery systems of grace, which I actually like better for modern thinking. Uh, you know, the, the Puritans and the Reformers and people like that called the means of grace. But they're both, that's a pretty parallel idea. Delivery system, you know, means are how you get it done. You know, the House Ways and Means Committee, how, how are we going to get this done? What's, what's the means? You know, part of the way you make a living is you need to have means <laughs> to uh, pay the bills and so forth. So, um, again, so lines uh, can be often one, two, or three parallel phrases. And uh, when they're two, they're called, when it's one, it's just called a cola, uh, plural colon. When it's two, it's called bicola. Just keep in mind, you might hear me accidentally say couplet, because that was the term I used for many years before I started reading study Bibles and other people's way of analyzing, you know, I used, I, some of you remember teachings where I said that Hebrew poetry is made up of couplets and triplets, because that was the terminology I made up. I don't think that's a common uh, use in, in biblical studies literature, but it's really the same as bicola or tricola. Um, and usually, uh, the one, two, or three phrases of a, of a bicola or tricola uh, form a single statement. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another is one statement with two cola, parallel cola. So then that's, that takes us to let's get into parallelism, parallelism and define that. Um, so I've got a lot of synonyms there just to make you think about it. Uh, this is my own 
run-on definition that I tried to be a little absurd in how many uh, similar words I threw together so so that I'm sure that you'll get that. But you could probably cut it down to one or two of these words if you're trying to explain it to someone else or if you're thinking about it for yourself. But where did I I put this? Um, Okay, the relationship or the interdependence or the correspondence, the connection, the affinity or contingency that intentionally exists between two juxtaposed lines. If anything can be said easily, I like to make it more complicated. Uh, (laughs) That's almost a tongue twister. Um, You could stand in front of the mirror and say that over and over again and work on your enunciation or something. Um, Again, the, the relationship, interdependence, correspondence, connection, affinity, or contingency that intentionally exists between two juxtaposed lines, that is segments, or two cola, bicolon, in a poetic line. Now, uh, you're going to see a lot of examples of that uh, on, in the rest of the page, as many as I could fit in, but I kept having this problem where we kept printing, printing on three pages on my computer when it was, I guess they had it already worked out over here to be down in two pages. So, thankfully, they called me because I spent about a half an hour kept trying to take a line out here and there, and I lost a few scriptures in the process. Um, uh, in Hebrew poetry, occasionally these corresponding connections can rhyme, not very often, uh, but you wouldn't know that unless you uh, not only read Hebrew, but knew how to pronounce it. You know, one of the issues with dead languages is though um, academic people are 100% totally sure that, that when they're doing dead languages like Koine and Attic Greek, that they're pronouncing it correctly. I've always been a little skeptical about, of that, uh, but that didn't get me off the hook with my Greek teacher who just couldn't stand how I pronounced things. <laughs> he'd he'd like keep pronouncing it correctly, and then I'd try again, and then he'd pronounce it correctly, and I'd try again. Then he'd pronounce it correctly, and I'd try again, and then he'd move on to something else because he didn't just shake his head. But... Uh, um, you know, modern Hebrew that's actually spoken in Israel today was the resurrection of a dead language with the Zionist movement uh, in the late 1800s. And they, uh, based on uh, all the knowledge they had of Hebrew manuscripts and so forth, made up the pronunciations. And uh, again, they're pretty sure they... I don't understand all the science of linguistics and how all of that works, but they're pretty sure they're saying it right. Even though they don't have any recordings or, uh, you know, I I really love that now on the the online dictionaries, not only do they give you all the symbols of whether it's a long vowel or short vowel or which syllable has the um, accent or whatever, I really like that you just (laughs) click on the little... uh, speaker symbol, and, it, and they pronounce it for you. Because <laughs> um, I actually, uh, you know, pronounce them all wrongly. That's, that was one of my uh, reasons that we, uh, 
hired Deanna in the first place years ago, I said, I got to get somebody that knows this much about grammar and English and all that to teach me how to pronounce things. And uh, she regularly does correct how I'm pronouncing it because most words that I know I actually got out of books and I've never heard anybody pronounce them. Eventually, I'm going to have to take up listening to podcasts like so many of you do so I can learn how to pronounce things. As long as I'm confessing my sins. Um, Strophy, I actually pronounced strophe for years. (laughs) I didn't know it was strophe. So until I clicked on that little thing in the dictionary that the the lady pronounced it for me. And I was like, wow. Glad I checked that out before I... I mean, pretty much people know I'm kind of stupid already, but I don't want to remove all doubt. But... uh, (laughs) uh, so I w- strophes I would also call stanzas, uh, and, and frankly, in some cases, you could call them refrains or choruses, uh, but they're a grouping of colas or lines that usually contain one main idea or concept. In the modern Bible translations, they're usually set apart by indentations or a little spacing between the lines. So if you go, we're going to make a lot of Psalm 1 in this series. If you look at Psalm 1, uh, there's a space between, I think it's uh, after 2 and before 3, and then after 4 before 5, because it's it's, uh, Psalm 1 is three strophes in six verses. And um, um, English Standard Version in particular does a good job because they don't use just indentations. Whenever it's a new strophe, there's a little bit of space. I guess that would be called horizontally up and down. There's a little space between each strophe. Now, one of the problems that you need to know, though, is that um, for some reason, a lot of online Bible hubs and Bible gateways and these kind of programs that are so wonderful and so so useful, they don't follow the formatting of, say, the new, you, you know, the NET uh, or whatever, the New English Translation or the ESV. So, so sometimes you'll find a website where the ESV's formatting comes through, and sometimes it doesn't. So you, uh, if you have a way uh, to, to look at the formatting, that can help you know where the strophes are. Does that make sense? Now, those are the building blocks, and you kind of need to know those building blocks to start talking about biblical parallelism. Uh, parallelism is the relationship, the interdependence, the correspondence, another run-on, Connection, affinity, or contingency that intentionally exists between two juxtaposed lines, segments, or cola in a poetic line. Did, we, did I read that already? Oh, okay. Um, uh, I already started to get into to parallelism. All right. Um, oh, yeah, because we started to say that these corresponding connections can be by rhyme, but seldom. But they are by wordplay more often and they're very often by images. Is that what I have there? Oh, no, by grammar. Um, So, again, 
if it's wordplay, rhyme, or grammar, that doesn't come through to an English translation, and that's the advantage of a good study Bible. Often a good study Bible will, will point that out. Okay, now what does come through is uh, when they're, they're done by imagery or one, you know, one meaning or one, is contained in the idea, and that comes through in translations. So I've got about 10 to 15 more minutes, so I'm just going to talk about some of these examples on the page. Now, I've actually, in these examples, in parentheses after them, in a few cases, I'm, uh, you know, I guess in, in, uh, when you're watching the news, they call it a tease, you know, uh, earthquake and such and such, seven dead, and uh, let's go to commercial, because <laughs> they want you to, well, I got I to gotta find out about where that earthquake was and, uh, you know, what, what exactly happened, so that's called a tease. So next week, we're going to look at uh, types of parallelisms, you know, because sometimes they're saying the same thing, sometimes they're saying the opposite thing. And when it says an opposite thing, there's different names. Uh, antithetical is one of them. Okay, and so there's, again, there's no standardized nomenclature for this. So, you know, somebody's version, somebody's study Bible might have seven uh, types of parallels. Uh, another one might have five types of parallels. Um, often you'll see, uh, for instance, there's that good book series that, takes major issues of the Christian faith and, you know, uh, three, ver three positions on the millennium. And, it, and uh, they, for some reason, they leave out the modern uh, uh, idea of dispensational premillennialism and they just put premillennialism, which really needs to be defined in, into historical or classical premillennialism and modern dispensational premillennialism. Um, but they just give premillennialism as one of the three. And then they give postmillennialism and anomalyism. And, and what they do in this book is they have uh, a, a, someone who's known for their stance for, say, amillennialism, write a pro-amillennialist essay. And then the two anti, the, 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 the premillennialist and the postmillennialist write a rebuttal. And uh, there's a whole, they do all kinds of, uh, they do like, I think there's six views of law and grace. There's uh, so the reason I thought of this is, you know, there's, uh, for instance, I think they have five views of apologetics. But if you really read the whole thing, what you get down to is there's really two views of apologetics, and they're really getting to a fine-tooth cone. When, uh, and really, you'd be better off to keep it more in terms of, say, evidential apologetics and presuppositional apologetics and not get five of them in your mind. That may be helpful in thinking about all these different kinds of parallelisms uh, because, you know, the terminology from one commentator to another doesn't always agree. Uh, but they are helpful to think about them for, for understanding what's being said. And the bottom line is when you're reading, you want to understand it, right? <laughs> and you want it to help your life. You know, a lot of you know that I... Uh, for many years, I read one chapter in Proverbs every day, and I had a very practical reason why I did it. I came to Christ when I was 17, and I read Proverbs for the first time uh, in the summer or of 
1974, when I was 17 years old. And it uh, has contrasting Proverbs a lot, where it says the fool does this and the wise man does this. And of course, that's that biblical wisdom idea of there's two paths and the righteous person is the wise person. And that it's, right, it's wise to be godly. And it's foolish to be ungodly. And so, unfortunately, when the first time I read Proverbs, I said, well, I'm the fool about 97.2% of the time. Just throwing that number out of the air. Of, you know, I didn't do any scientific analysis or anything, but, uh, or mathematical analysis for that matter. But, you know, I don't know if I wanted to because it might have been 100% of the time I was the fool, but it was, dar- it was way up there. And uh, so uh, I forget who, but someone told me a little trick that there's 31 chapters of Proverbs. Uh, Now, some of you, probably around half the church feels differently about this, but I was never that concerned with Proverbs 31 because my goal is not to become a virtuous wife. (laughs) Although I read it enough to to know how to find, to recognize one when I met her. Although it took me seven years before I began to realize what a good deal. <laughs> yeah. we, we knew each other about seven years before we went out on our first date. But, um, you know, uh, um, getting the understanding is kind of a necessary stepping stone to letting the Word of God form your character and shape your life and form your attitudes and your spirit and so forth. Right? So so let's get into this. Proverbs, uh, I I tried to make uh, quite a few of these out of the Psalms, but one thing you should know about couplets and triplets, they're a piece of cake in the Proverbs. Proverbs, almost every line is is a parallel couplet. So... um, and often, if it's the uh, synonym type of parallel couplet, it's the, you know, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, is both a, a type of parallelism called a synonymous uh, parallelism, and it's uh, also called an emblematic parallelism. It, so some, some of the way, when you're looking at these categories, another thing to keep in mind is often the parallelisms are two or three types in the same parallelism. Um, at least two. So let's get into Proverbs 26.11, my all-time favorite, because it's so disgusting. I've always thought this is vivid imagery. I don't know about you, but there's nothing I can't handle except vomit. (laughs) You know, like, I, I still have this nightmare about one of our children once was very sick, and they were, had drank some kind of orange drink or something, and they were sitting on our rust-colored, sort of orangish old couch. And they started to vomit, and it, like, it was like a world record, <laughs> it, both in quality and flow and quantity and, and how far it flew. And uh, I, I was uh, freaking out a little bit, to say the least. <laughs> Some people say I freak out. I, I don't know. I guess I do. Um, working on that, but... You know, I couldn't even uh, work up the courage to, to help clean it up because uh, that makes me uh, want 
do the same. So here's my favorite one. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I can still remember the first time we had a little dog that I saw do that. You know, dogs do that. They throw up and then they go eat it again. And everyone is going like, because you're supposed to. Right? You're spo- it's, it's, it's wanting to be a very graphic, very disgusting image. Probably not um, acceptable for polite social society. I should probably be fired for even talking about vomit at church, although Jesus did <laughs> in Revelation. So, uh, so if we're lukewarm, he's going to... I will. Um, but what it's wanting to, to help you see is, you know, some of us, I've heard one or two, and I know from my life, once or twice, I've repeated the same folly. <laughs> no, don't we do that? Like, don't, don't you, you know, the, it must be such a, such a regular phenomena that in the book of Hebrews, uh-oh, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Yes, I am. I got to... In the book, I was thinking I was way ahead. You know what we need to do is we need to get that clock over to one side or another so I can actually see it. Um, That would be where. Let's do that. Um, Anyway, I mean, it looks so bright in the middle there, but the the lights from the fan are on it. All right, so it's such a graphic figure of speech. You know, Hebrew says, let us lay aside that sin that so easily entangles us. Apparently... Lots of people uh, have sins that they repeat. I'll tell you, this didn't come from one extra large french fries at five guys. <laughs> it was a few more times than that. Um, so emblematic parallelisms when a figure of speech, like a dog returning to his vomit, it, uh, or an image or a word picture it is an illustration of the second line. Proverbs 10, uh, 1, a wise son makes his father's glad, uh, glad, but a foolish son is a grief, or the ESV says sorrow, but I think grief's a stronger word. Uh, New King James and New American Standard use grief to his mother. Um, I, I love that verse ever since I had little kids. I actually used to think about that all the time because uh, when I was a teenager, I was one of the things I was trying to change is that I had been a very deep grief to my parents. And especially my, my father was very grieved over my character. And of course, I was not a Christian and so forth. And I really focused the first several years of my Christian life and sort of making it up to them. You know... I had proved the old adage that old age is heredity. You get it from raising your children. It's hereditary, I should say. You get it from raising children. Uh, I, had, I had added a lot of years to my parents because of my lack of character and my foolishness as, as in my pre-Christian reprobate days. Uh, Psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children... I love watching John Gray and John Weiss and some of these guys with their kids. Like, if you remember, there was a time when little Susan hit her head on the pew at the old church. And it was quite clear that, that her daddy was going to comfort her as long as it took. There, was not, there wasn't going to be any struggle for patience. Or, 
anything like that. It, there was deep concern. And I, I happened to be at the Gray's house once when uh, Daniel and Lily were wrestling on the couch and having a great time. And Lily did a head first dive <laughs> uh, without even like breaking the water with her hands. She just hit her head straight on the hardwood floor. Bam. Oh, and I said, oh, that hurt. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, the parents had as much compassion as long as it took. Uh, why? Where were we? Um, just as the father has compassion on his children, and uh, I lost a particular guy in the audience that I really wanted to hear this. So, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You know, like so many people, we have this idea that God's like uh, getting tired of us and he's running out of patience and he's just like, when, when the heck is this guy going to get serious about me? He's not like that. He's forbearing, long-suffering, and patient. And if it takes you another 30 years to get it, he's going to still love you. Now, that doesn't mean when you dive off the couch and hit your head on the floor, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> but your, your heavenly father is going to hold you in his arm and put ice on it and say, oh, you got to pour boo-boo and kiss it and everything like that for as long as it takes. And he's not about to get frustrated with how long you're taking to grow or give up on you in any way, shape, or form. Did, did you hear that? Uh, as the deer pants for flowing streams or water brooks in the King James, so pants my soul for you. Another emblematic and also um, syn synonymous uh, one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? That's called a synthetic. We'll get into that next week. It means that it's a progression. Um, so that's, that's enough because of time. I, I wish I could have got through more of these. But you, they're on the page. Hopefully you'll read them. And hopefully you'll start looking for those in both Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, of course, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job contain them too. But... Uh, and we'll talk about what types of parallelisms there are next week. And we have uh, five minutes until the regular worship meeting starts.